Blog Talk Radio. It's time for the Root and Roots Show on blogtalkradio.com. Now here's your host, Greg Rashid, bringing you the best in music, information, and history. Well, good evening, everyone. This is Greg Rashid, the host of the Root and Roots Show, heard every Friday evening at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time and at 6 p.m. on Saturdays at Eastern Standard Time and also on KUHS in Denver, Colorado, and Denver, Ra- Denver Radio and TV. Thanks to Henry Archer Letter, we're on there on Saturdays and Wednesdays and the times can vary there, but I hope you enjoy the show. I want to say hi to my friends out there in Denver, first of all, and hope you've been enjoying the show. And say hi to everyone who's been listening to this show for a number of years now. And we're going to get to the music right now because we're devoting this segment of the show to the the great gospel group, the Soul Stirrers, because this is the Root and Root Show, and we do roots music from all the genres, be it blues, country, hip-hop, soul, jazz, but right now we're concentrating on gospel music. And we're going to play the soul stories right now. We're going to start it off with He's Been a Shelter for Me. So let's hear the soul stories on the Root and Root Show.
right. That was the Soul Slurs, and he's been a shelter for me, and that featured Paul Foster on lead vocals. And I'm waiting, still waiting for my guest to come on here, so I'm going to play another Soul Stirrer song as we wait for my guest. And we're going to do right now, I think we will play Why I Like Roosevelt. So let's hear that. And this is the Soul Stirrers again. In fact, we're not going to do that right now because I believe my guest is on the line there. And I've never had a... Uh, Grammy Award winner on my show before in all these years. I've had a Pulitzer Prize winner before, and I had some sports winners that won awards, but never a Grammy Award winner. So I'm happy to have on the show this evening the producer of a superb compilation of the Soul Stirs and actually Life After Sam Cooke. It's uh, the Soul Stirs Joy in My Soul, and I'm speaking about Terry Lynn. Are you there, Terry? Terry Landry, I'm sorry, I Terry am Landry. here. Are you there? All right. Yes, I am here, Greg. And you have you know, I'm doing just fine. I am glad to hear that. And this is a great compilation, and I love the Soul Stirs, and I've been playing them for years. But you did something different because usually when you think of the Soul Stirs, you think of naturally, those of you who know your gospel history, you think of Sam Cooke as lead singer. But I started to set off, the show off, with um, Paul Foster as the lead singer of the Soul Stirs on a particular song. He's been a shelter for me. And I just want you to tell our listeners, first of all, before we even do that, I'm going to go back in time. I'm going to give the listeners a taste of um, the first lead singer they had who was popular, and I'm talking about R.H. Harris. And we're going to play Why I Like Roosevelt. So let's hear that on the Root and Root Show, and then, Terry, you can talk about R.H. Harris and the dawning of the Soul Stirs and Sam Cooke and everything. So let's hear that song right now. He was a liberal and had a lot of fans in the African-American community. He had what was called the Black Cabinet in the Office of Negro Affairs. It was an informal group of African-Americans who made policy for their people. He guaranteed racial, religious, and ethnic minorities a fair share of wartime jobs. When he passed away, he was immortalized in song. A number of people recorded this one. It was written by Otis Jackson. But we're going to play a version that the Soul Stirs recorded for Aladdin Records. This was before they were on specialty and long before Sam Cooke joined them. This is when R.H. Harris still led the band. Here they are, and they're going to tell you why they like Roosevelt. You like Roosevelt, oh, man's friend. Tell me why you like Roosevelt, oh, man's friend. Tell me why you like Roosevelt, oh, man's friend. He was a good president till the end of 1945. A good president laid down and died. I knew how all of the poor people felt when they received the message we've lost Roosevelt. Life. They were all in the cages at Warm Spring, Georgia. He received salvation. Now listen, boy, don't you rush him. He little your man off. She grabbed a brush, dipped it in water, and began to paint. She looked at the president and began to thank him. She never painted a picture for him at night, but she knew that the president did look right. The time of day was 12 o'clock. <laughs> 
Tell me that Elizabeth had to stop. Great God Almighty, she started too late. That is why this is called that unfinished poetry. Tell me why you like Roosevelt. Tell me why you like Roosevelt. Why you like a Roosevelt? He was a good president till he Well, a little bit later, about 1.30, had a several him the world of muddy. They call Atlanta or Washington to light. Cause he was act light and the call went through. Call long distance to notify why Dr. Bruin said he died at 3.35. Great God Almighty, was no bells at all. Less than 30 minutes, the world was in mourn. I cried about Roosevelt. I cried about Roosevelt. Well, I cried about Roosevelt. He was a good president till he died. Congress assemble, great and God Almighty, the poor tremble, the rich would ride in the automobile, depression made poor people raw and steal, but the McDonald's, I wasn't getting anything for their hard labor, great and God Almighty, there were moonshine stealing, brought about a crime, we were robbing and killing, now the other presidents made us moan, Bell stepped in, gave us a comfortable home, that's why I like a room. And that was a and that was a soul stirrers featuring R. H. Harris. And that was why I like Roosevelt, poor man's friend. And we have on the line right now the Grammy Award winning. And I, you know, how many times have you won the Grammy, by the way, uh, Terry? Oh, I, this was my first time and my first oh, nomination. Okay. So, uh, oh, wow. So I, 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 I was very lucky the first time around. Yeah, my goodness. Uh, I think you win one. For, yeah. I think for next year you might win it for this one because this is a superb <laughs> well, compilation. And this is uh, the Soul Stirrer's Joy in My Soul. If you're just tuning in, I'm talking with Terry Landy, who's the compilation producer of this great two-CD set here. And it's on um, it is on AK, um, I'm trying to read the small Apple writing Records. here. At Co- yeah, at small Co- print. Records. That's the problem with CDs these days. I know, Co- I Records. know. And I think I can see how glasses, and sometimes I'm like, I can't see what that says there. But you need to say, I want you to tell my listeners a little bit, and you can join in at 424-675-8315. Tell us a little about the history of the Soul Stirrers, because you have a great booklet in this uh, compilation where you get into the history. In particular, talk about R.H. Harris, and then what happens when Sam Cooke comes into the group. Well, the Soul Stars uh, were initially formed in Texas, and uh, R.H. Harris was the principal uh, leader of the group. Um, actually, it, it, it goes back a little farther with a fellow named Roy Crane, and Roy Crane actually um, is a significant role in the SAR record story, and also in the, the Soul Stars as well. Um, he 
He launched a, a quartet earlier on in 1926 in Trinity, Texas. Uh, a little bit later on, he came and, and joined an existing group uh, on the condition that they changed their name to the Soul Stirs. And that existing group already had Rebert H. Harris in the group. And he became their musical leader. He was an incredible um, stylist, vocal stylist. He was known for um, his falsetto style. And, um, I mean, you didn't really hear it on that track, but you know it when you hear it. And R.H. was um, the principal lead singer of the Solsters um, into 1950 when he quit to form his own group. And, uh, and when Sam Cooke came into the fold, uh, I believe it was about early 1951 when Sam started cutting his first records. And by that point, right. they were on the specialty label in Los Angeles and being directed by Art Roop. Um, and specialty was, of course, uh, a great early rhythm and blues label. Also, gospel was highly featured on the label as well. Um, right. And that and kind of caused a furor when R.H. left the group. And you got to remember, you know, these were all a, older fellows. Right. Right. And the thing is, I yeah. want to tell my and, listeners um, that R.H. was a legendary gospel performer. And he set the stage for, prior to that, and you mentioned this in the, the booklet in the uh, compilation, that prior to the Soul Stirs, in particular R.H. Harris, the gospel sound was completely different. If you could talk a little bit about that, and you mentioned right. it as far as falsetto, but talk a little more about that because it changed things. Right, because the, the, there was a jubilee style and also a choir kind of sound. What these guys did was um, they brought a different kind of, an, or more of a bit, bit of an earthiness into the, the singing. They also pioneered R&B and doo-wop and vocal group singing in, 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 in you know, at, at this point in time. Uh, most of the, um, the, the recordings were generally um, um, a cappella. There were vocal groups. Sometimes they were accompanied by guitar. Um, a little bit later on, they started to incorporate some more instruments, but, but it, the main focus was, and, and most of the time, the recordings were a cappella, and you would think that you were hearing an orchestra in there. They're, they're just so full-sounding. Um, but, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so the four-part harmony kind of revolutionized things and changed the face of gospel forever on, really. And then Sam Cooke comes along, and he changes gospel in a different way. And talk about what Sam does, and we'll get into actually what this compilation is about, because I wanted you to set the stage. But tell tell us about what Sam yeah. Cooke does when he comes in there. Well, he's very young. I mean, you got to remember he's, what, he's about 18 years old when he comes in, and Art Roop is not really quite sure of uh, Sam's ability and uh, what he does is, because he's 18 years old, too, um, and he's singing with these older guys here, um, he kind of brings, he brings a brand new quality to, to the group, but also uh, Sam is quite handsome. And uh, at this point, uh, he kind of becomes a bit of an idol. Um, and uh, again, once again, revolutionizes the 
the soul stirs and the gospel sound. Um, I mean, we've got people in the audiences, not that they weren't going crazy, they were already going crazy in the audiences, but it, it, in, in, how do I put this, in some ways it sexualized it a little bit more, because Sam was such a handsome dude. Um, so, um, um, and I've, seen, I've seen some pictures of him with the soul stirs, I've seen him with him as a solo performer, but with the soul stirs where you see young yeah. ladies in the audience just swooning. And yeah, he's in the absolutely. front, and they're in the background, and they, you can just see they're just swimming, and they're just looking at him, and they just can't believe it. And he's milking it in. I mean, he's just taking it in, and he's enjoying it. As he should be as an 18-year-old, you know. Um, That's right. Absolutely. So things do change a bit. He's he's a bit of a, a handsome teenile, but which I, I, I think is a bit conflicting in the gospel world, too. So it's it's a little bit of controversy and of course he 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 also starts a bit more controversy when he decides to go pop as well in 1956 and he cuts some pop records for specialty um of course at first he he cut them under the name of dale cook um and cook was uh actually at some point he did put the e on there but (laughs) But right. uh, well, but yeah, right and I don't now. think we can actually I don't think we can actually understand that now how controversial this was at the time. Oh, it was something when he went to secular. I mean, it had to be. It was an amazing moment when that happened. I'm going to play Sam Cook right now when he was the lead singer singing "Touch the Hem of His Garment," and then I'm going to do mm. the first person that took his place in the group, Johnny Taylor, who's you talk about in the and we'll talk about Johnny Taylor when we get back. So let's give the listeners a um opportunity if they haven't heard Sam Cook with the Soul Stirrers, let's give them the opportunity to hear that and then we'll do Johnny Taylor with the Soul Stirrers. So let's hear that on the Root and Root show. Whoa, there was a woman in the Bible day. She had been sick, sick so very long. But she heard my Jesus was passing by. So she joined the gathering throng. And while she was pushing her way through, someone asked her, what are you trying to do? She said, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, I know I she cried, oh, and 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 and had no more to spare. The doctors, they done all they could, but their medicine would do no good. When she touched him, the Savior didn't see, but still he turned around and cried, somebody touch me. She said it was I who just want to touch the hem of your garment. I know I'll be made whole right now. Down, 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 down,
now that I'm in trouble Stand by me to the end, oh, oh. oh I want you to stand by with that very recording. 
um, was the very first single, uh, which came out in and 1959. The, and September. this is a unique, yeah, and it's very unique because you're talking about a young African-American singer, artist, Sam Cooke, forming this label. And talk about what the initials stand for, sorry, S-A-R, and, you know, what what was going on with this? Yeah, um, S-A-R. Okay, so S-A-R stands for Sam, Alex, and Roy. And Roy being Roy Crane, who I mentioned before, uh, who really was responsible for the name Soulsters. And Alex is J.W. Alexander, and J.W. Alexander was with a, another group called the Pilgrim. And, and Pilgrim traveled. J.W. actually was um, uh, the person that uh, recommended Sam to come into the group. Um, and uh, Pilgrim Travelers were also recording for uh, Specialty as well. So very early on, they, they, they formed a, a friendship, um, and, uh, which became a, a business relationship as well. So the three of them started Saw Records in 1959, and they set up shop on... Uh, initially, I believe it was run out of J.W.'s apartment, and then they actually set up shop on Hollywood Boulevard, which was not far away from the recording studios in Los Angeles. So, um, uh, it's really so yeah, incredible so it was, it was. Go ahead. Yep. No, no, you, you know, go ahead. It's, yeah, it's a really incredible because you're talking about, as I was saying earlier, a younger artist in office friends there forming this label at a time where, frankly, a lot of African-American artists, as well as white artists, too, were getting ripped off by these companies, by these record yeah. companies, and not making anything. And Sam Cooke yeah. decides that he's going to create his own thing and get the, you know, and get, get the money, get all the residuals and everything. And that was a very bold statement to make in that era in the late 50s. Yeah, they had their own publishing company, which was CAG's Music. And um, Sam, okay, on one end, Sam had already been in the business uh, for a bit, and uh, he learned a lot about um, production uh, in in the studio. Uh, he learned how the engineers work. He learned how the producers worked. He learned how the arrangers, musicians worked. Um, and uh, they wanted to give uh, young artists uh, the benefit of the production sound that they could get with a major label. Um, but And they wanted to basically give something back to their community. And, uh, and what you were talking about before, about you know, a lot of labels ripping off artists, these guys were close to their artists. And um, I know that uh, you are definitely familiar with the Saw Record Story 2 CD set that APCO put out in 1994. You can hear how close it is in the studio with the people that he's producing. I mean, there's such a camaraderie going there in oh, the yeah. studio between everybody. And they're having a good time, but they're getting work done. And... I mean, uh, they're working very it, hard. It was like you said, it is a good it is a good time and the outtakes of some of those sessions are just they're just hilarious. Yeah. Yeah, oh you know, yeah. Sam, yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> Sam Especially with Johnny Morissette. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah, that, that's a story in itself there. 
But I'm going to play yeah, right now, Terry. And listeners, you can call in at a 424-675-8315. Again, I'm talking to Terry Landy. She's the compilation producer of this great CD set, The Soul Stirrers, Joy in My Soul on Atco. And it's um, about the time when Sam Cooke is not the lead singer, but he's producing these on SAR Records. And I'm going to play right now, and I want you to set this up. Um, the lead singer on this, he becomes the lead singer, I believe, after um, Johnny Taylor. And this is Listen to the Angels. And talk a little bit about uh, uh, Jimmy there. Oops, you're still there? Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. I thought you were going to be playing. No, I, 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 I Are you playing Listen to the Angels? You're asking no, me a question. No, not yet, not yet. Yeah, I'm asking if you just set this okay. up a little. This is listen to the angels and the lead singer on it. Oh, 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 yes, yes, Jimmy Outler. Um, yes, yeah. okay, so Johnny Taylor. I know this story can get confusing because there's so many lead singers. Uh, there are four lead singers, as a matter of fact, on this two-CD set. Uh, uh, Johnny Taylor, okay, so Johnny Taylor was the lead singer of the group uh, and uh, left in uh, 59, and um, and actually didn't really go too far because he remained as a, an artist on the SAR label. Uh, so in comes Jimmy Outler, who is just an absolutely another incredible voice, another singer that emulates Sam in a way, but again has his own sound. And the song that you're about to play is an actual original composition uh, by Jimmy, um, written with Leroy Kroom, who was also vocalist. Uh, came in, Leroy Kroom actually came into the Soul Stars while they were still at Specialty and while Sam the group. Um, and um, anyway, we'll have a listen. Yeah, listen, listen to it right now. Listen to the angels sing on the Root and Root show. Heaven that morning, listen to 
I thought I'd sneak that one in, and there was a Paul Foster lead singer of the Soul Stirrers there, and I'm a pilgrim, and I started a set earlier the show off with Paul Foster singing. Uh, he's been a shelter for me, and I have to say, um, Terry, that of the lead singers that took over after Sam Cooke, Paul is my favorite. And talk a little bit about Paul, because Paul had a completely oh. different sound. Yeah, Paul had a very deep voice. Yeah, Paul Foster. Uh, very, 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 very deep voice singer. Um, just really, really catchy. He's got like it, it's almost like a guttural kind of sound, if you know what I mean. It comes from deep in the chest. I mean, um, yeah. Paul was uh, Paul was actually yes. Paul was in the group as well um, from the uh, that uh, came from specialty into the SAR period. Uh, and Paul was also in the group with with Sam, um, and yeah, he did briefly take over as lead singer for a period of time before um, before uh, Johnny came in, I believe. Um, and um, one thing I want to mention about those two tracks you played was that they were cut at the very very first session that they did with Jimmy now in the group, uh, which was in uh, September. September 6, 1960. And uh, something that's very interesting about um, these recordings that they made for SAR is the instrumental backing. Um, I mean, they're they're significantly different than the recordings that they made for specialty. Um, right. In that these were almost treated like R&B records. Um, and the when they were in Hollywood, they're the best musicians. Uh, they're more familiar now, known as the Wrecking Crew. Uh, I think a lot more people know who they are now because of uh, there was a great film documentary that was made about them in recent years. Um, but uh, these were the musicians that played on Sam Cooke's records for RCA, for Keen and RCA. Also played. Sam also brought these people in to play the records for his artists. And um, so there's a pretty thread that goes through recordings that were made, uh, whether they were pop, R&B, soul recordings, or gospel. You you, yes. you hear something very, very similar in the arrangements and the sound. I mean, is it, what you just heard there were just basic guitar, bass, drum setup, sometimes piano. Right, and if you listen to other listeners, if you listen to other gospel performers of the same period, groups similar to that, like the uh, Pilgrim Travelers, the Dixie Hummingbirds and all, you don't have that sound. They're great performers, uh, swan silver tones, folks like that. You don't hear that type of that R&B background sound. You yeah. don't hear that. And that's, that's an incredible no. thing. But Terry, really I is. just feel like... Oh yeah, it is. But I just, you know, I'm getting ready to conclude the segment. But I just, I just want to thank you so much for compiling this CD. How long did it take you to actually get these recordings together and get this? Well, um, I had been, I've been working on the catalog for for many, many years. Um, but it didn't really, I didn't really start to pull all of this material together until early last year. And what was kind of cool was that. You know, you're working with something for so very long, but 
there's always a possibility of making a new discovery. And I actually did. I found a track that I had not previously known about because it, the indications on the multi-track tape box uh, it, it basically indicated that it was something uh, that they may have re uh, just to explain things here a little bit better uh, when the gates swing open which is the, the track that closes out the second CD um, on the multi-track it was actually marked as toiling on so oh, really? when I looked at the box yes when I looked at the tape box I thought okay wow they recut toiling on in 1964 but when I popped it up on the tape machine I heard something different <laughs> so it kind Definitely. of blew my mind and it's it's just a wonderful thing that you could be working with something for so many years and yet you pull something out that you hadn't put up on the machine before and you make a new discovery so so it, it really really came together here and um, and uh, I just want to also just say that it, it, it's their complete recordings. It is um, uh, their two albums that they recorded for the Sarlay, augmented by additional tracks that were on a SAR compilation called Gospel Pearls. And there's some singles that were released in 1964, which were not on the albums. And there's four uh, unreleased recordings, previously unreleased recordings. Um, Terry, it was a labor of you, love. You, I have really beautiful. You can you can you can tell music. by the way, by the way you put it together, the booklet. You can just see that you really enjoyed doing this, and I enjoyed talking to you today. And I didn't even ask you what what did you win the Grammy for this year? I didn't even ask that. Oh oh, it, it uh, actually I won last year. Um, uh -huh. I won for the Rolling Stones' "Charlie Is My Darling," um, oh. which yes. Yes, which was a um uh basically the soundtrack music to um a film document um which was a document of their nineteen sixty five very very short Irish tour uh in september of sixty five but uh the, it was documented on black and white film, and I put together the music that's something and i I think you're gonna be up for an Another Grammy next year with this one because this is this is good. This <laughs> well, is let's so hope good. so. <laughs> you know, and I've been waiting. Let's you know, because so. I, I I do have the SAR compilation that was done uh, years ago, but this is just you know it, I just love this. I just love this that you separated the pop and all yeah. and put well, the straight gospel in. in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is all straight, and 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 it, and it puts it in um, a perspective from a chronological sense too because. It's it's both discs kick off with the actual albums and then the what was acting on between them as well, and uh, and and you hear the change too between the first disc and the second disc because when you get to the second disc, there um, the uh, the encore with the Soul Stars album was actually cut in Chicago, all in Chicago, and we have the addition of an organ in there. And and you want to talk about an R&B sound? It, oh, it, yeah. It's it's really on that one. It's it's incredible. Right. And and Paul Paul and Jimmy both really get down on that one. It's just oh, yeah. it's they, incredible. Uh, it's just invigorating music, and uh, it just makes me want to cry when I hear this stuff. Oh, that's great! And I, I would have played every song on here, but I said no. We got to get the folks out there to buy this because this is really great. And Absolutely. also, if you get listeners, if you get a chance, 
go on YouTube and look at the Soul Stirrers with Paul Foster singing, because there's a couple of cuts of him singing solo on there, it, as well as Jimmy uh, Outlook, because Jimmy, Jimmy is a, he is a showman. I mean, he is something. If you see yeah. him performing, I mean, he, he puts on a show as he's singing. So it's, you know, it's some really yeah. great stuff. So I think Terry, you're talking about wanna... TV Gospel Time, right? That's right, that's right. I think TV you're talking, gospel yeah, time. TV Gospel Time. Yep, that's the one, yeah. Oh, yeah, it, it's incredible. It, when uh, Jimmy's singing, I'm Just a Soldier in Army of Love, oh, my goodness. Yeah, that's fantastic. And that's what, the wonderful Leroy Croom as well, who we just lost recently um, playing uh, guitar on those in that performance. Oh, man. Yeah. Well, it is just, yeah. it is just incredible. But Terry, I just want to thank you again. This compilation is incredible and I just want to thank you again. If anyone wants to reach you, if you have a website or anything, give that right now. Oh yeah, yeah. Um they can go to www.abkco.com. And All right. uh, you can check out uh yeah, you can you can Look at everything. <laughs> Check out oh, the yeah, whole catalog. There's a lot of great stuff. Including, yeah, including other, yeah, other releases that we've we've done uh, under uh, Sam Cooke and Sar, as well. Oh yeah, you know, even even the one Elsie um, Cook, Sam's uh, brother. I mean, that's a, that's an amazing thing yep. too. But thank you so yes, much. Yes, and again, we also Jerry. have the Valentinos out right now too. So that's thank right. you that's so much, true. Greg. It was really, yep, that's a one. Uh, so thank you for having me on. Oh, thank you. We'll be talking. I hope to meet you in person. You just take care, Terry. Thanks so much. Absolutely. Okay. Bye-bye. All right. Again, and that was Terry Landy. She's the compilation producer and Grammy winner, winner too. And it was the Soul Stirrer's Joy in My Soul. And it's a two-CD compilation based on the SAR records of, that uh, were produced by Sam Cooke. It's really just a... It's a great CD. I I really felt like playing the whole thing on the show, but I can't do that. Then you copy it, and then there won't be any money going to ADCO, but that's another story in itself. But we're going to get to more music here. We're going to have another guest here in the next hour, but Valentine's Day is tomorrow for those of you who are not listening to this in Denver, because if you're listening in Denver, Valentine's Day is today. So I know it gets kind of confusing Listen to my show at times, but I'm going to play right now Atlantic Star When Love Calls. So some of you will hear the call of love tomorrow. Already may have heard it. So let's hear When Love Calls by Atlantic Star on the Root and Root Show.
Thank you. 
especially mm-hmm. working with uh, prisoners. And then after that, talk about the new study that just came out on lynching. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Well, thank you for um, inviting us to have this opportunity to talk to your listeners. We are um, very grateful. Um, again, the Equal Justice Initiative, uh, we're based in Montgomery, Alabama. We are a nonprofit organization that provides legal representation to indigent defendants and prisoners who have been condemned um, and denied fair and just treatment in the legal system. We work on behalf of prisoners, juvenile offenders, people wrongly convicted or charged with violent crimes, and poor people who have been denied effective representation and others who have just been marked by their trials or marked by racial bias or prosecutorial misconduct. Um, We work with communities that have been marginalized by poverty and discouraged by unequal treatment. And as a part of that work, that work focused on understanding the implications of economic injustice and racial bias in our society, which launched our Race and Poverty Project. And um, the lynching report that you referenced is actually the second report in this series for the project. The first report focused on slavery in America with a particular emphasis on the Montgomery, Alabama slave trade. Um, But the lynching report we released on Tuesday, and it documents our multi-year investigation into lynching into 12 southern states, uh, which include Alabama, Arkansas, Florida, Georgia, Kentucky, Louisiana, Mississippi, North Carolina, South Carolina, Tennessee, Texas, and Virginia between 1877 and 1950. And what we found was that there are at least 700 more lynchings of black people in these states than previously reported. and what we really hope well, what was, was the uh, previous number there? What was the previous number? Um, it was closer to about 3,200. So our number is right at 4, almost 4,000, and the previous number was a little over 3,200. So still a very alarming number. And I, I just want to emphasize that these are the ones that have been reported or that we've uncovered. Um, so, And it's, it's absolutely uh, startling when you think of the magnitude of that number. I mean, it really, I mean, even if it was like two lynchings, one lynching, but the, that number, and like you said, the fact is that these are the reported ones that you know. Think about the, I'm going to say the thousands that have gone unreported. And I know there's some listeners out there who want to join in at 424-675-8315. And, I'll, and say your name again. I'm so sorry. No, it's fine. I, my name is Kiara Boone. Yeah, Kiara um now, there are some folks that might be saying to themselves that, okay, you know, that lynch is a long time ago. Why, why would they put a report out now? Especially, you know, well, you know, let's celebrate something positive during Black History Month. Why do you want to, you know, why would the group mm-hmm. want to do that? You know, the, you know, mm-hmm. lynching is over. Just, just what would you say to someone like that? No, I, and I, we hear that sentiment and um, we understand it. But I think from our perspective, um, we don't think that we can fully uh, begin to have these meaningful conversations about what's happening today until we understand our history. And so even though, um, and we would argue that this history isn't too, isn't that long ago. Um, when we talk That's about 1950 is when our report ends, that, that is in um, our parents and our grandparents and a lot of our, your listeners probably their lifetime. Um, and they probably have relatives who um, have told them, community stories. And so for us, it is still very relevant to the uh, issues that we face today. And um, our effort really is not to um, 
sort of dampen the mood of the celebration or the achievements that African Americans and people of color and poor people have been able to accomplish in this country, but it is to contextualize it. So it's one thing to say that we've been able to do all this, but when we can say that we've done it in the face of all of this adversity, it really brings more meaning and more um, uh, context to these struggles. And with the lynching report, what we want to be able to do is to talk about that trauma that impacts the communities and that still impacts communities when we look at how um, lynching was used to basically keep a group of people, black people, in place. It was used to reinforce this myth of white supremacy. And so we have to understand and unpack that, and it becomes very relevant to what we talk about when we talk about the celebrations and achievements um, in black, during Black History Month. And I want you to uh, talk about Kiara, too, because you mentioned it in the report. But some people mm-hmm. don't get this aspect. They'll look, you know, you hear the word lynching, you'll say, oh, yeah, you know, well, that is, I, you know, I, this, was, this is not the way I agree, but it's a, it's a black issue. But talk about the legacy of lynching to the white population, because that's something that it, you bring it out in your report, but that's something you really rarely hear. It's like, I, you know, you see the pictures of lynchings, you see a crowd of white folks around, but it's like almost they get a pass on it. And talk mm-hmm. about that, just that legacy care. Absolutely. So um, many of the lynchings that we document were violent and very public events. Um, And these were absolutely traumatic events for the black community because they were intended to be these intimidation tactics. But when we think about um, the implications for the white community as well, we have um, southern white children who were taught at that time to embrace this traumatic violence and the racist narrative underlying it. So we have kids at a very young age who are through their pictures of toddlers being hosted on top of their parents' shoulders at these lynching events and being exposed to this type of violence and taught that this was um, this was okay, that this was normal, and this is how things should be. And then you have those children who go on and teach that that myth of racial supremacy and these racial differences to their children. And um, it's very traumatic, I think, to be told throughout your life for generations that um, you are better than someone else because of the color of your skin and then be confronted with a narrative that says, no, that's not true. Um, So on one hand, you have that psychological abuse, and then you have the actual exposure to violence. And this has been documented by psychological studies um, even more recently about children who are exposed to this type of very violent behavior and been and then taught to think about it as being justified as being something that the people who you whom you look up to participate in and it just again perpetuates that so that it becomes a generational problem you know and Kara, I'm glad you mentioned the term event because I want you to tell my listeners about because you know the way it's portrayed in the media when you see a lynching is like some white folks come into someone's house or just grab someone off the street and they string them up in the middle of the night. But talk about the aspect of the fact that many times these were actually serious events. You know, like, you know, you would see a poster announcing this was going to happen, and it was entertaining. Talk about that. These were often, um, that we have documented, again, many uh, incidents where these were uh, coordinated efforts. There there was a time-designated People will notify the word spread rapidly. Um, In some communities, people were coming from all over the local uh, surrounding area by train and by car um, to participate 
and this lynching. And not only was and so not only was there people who were being like hung from trees by rope, but they were also being burned alive at the stake. And um, the most again startling incidents is the people taking souvenirs of the deceased. So they are cutting off these body parts and things. And again, going back to the, the previous question about the trauma, you have people taking souvenirs of a deceased person's body back to their community um, from this event, this spectacle. And you have people selling food, and it's very much a carnival a- atmosphere. And that's what we, we focus on when we talk about um, the different types of racial terrorism that these lynchings had. And so we have these lynchings that were based on the fear of interracial sex and minor social transgressions like smiling at a white woman or walking down the wrong side of the sidewalk, um, public spectacle where it literally was an event where um, they were, it happened in front of elected officials, it happened in front of um, prominent citizens. It was, um, it was on the front page of newspapers of some towns. Right. Yeah. And if you read some of the newspaper accounts. Yeah. Go ahead. If you just listen to how it's characterized, um, it is it's framed in a way that makes it seem like uh, justice has been carried out without critically that's, that's analyzing really, what has just happened. Right. And, you know, I it shocked me. I shouldn't say it shocked me. But back in the, when I was in college in the 70s, when I started reading about lynching and Ida B. Wells and all, I was mm-hmm. just amazed to find out that at the time there were people, there were older white men mostly around, in the 70s, who were keeping with them withered toes of black men. But they had gotten lynched mm-hmm. for good luck, a year, a withered year or something like that. But they would keep it in their pocket forever or keep it in a case for good luck. Mm-hmm. And folks, you know, a lot of people don't realize how, you know, the intricacy of lynchings at that time. And I, I'm still trying to look for this, but... I have heard that the term picnic actually meant pick a nigger. Now, I don't know if you saw that in your research or not, but I had learned that many, many years ago. Mm-hmm. And it's definitely something that um, is a sentiment, I think, that a lot of people probably have heard when you talk when you talk about the, the root of that word. But I think what's more telling about that rumor is it's, um, relevant when we think about these, again, going back to this public spectacle lynching and how um, it become. you can see how it plays out and it can become very true. Now, whether or not it is um, is a whole other story, but the fact that it right. has that possibility, that has that connection, um, should be unsettling to people. Very much so. Now, what did you find in the study that kind of like you – you know, you're probably like me as far as I think I know everything about lynching. I've read enough. But what surprised you, Kiara, as you were doing the study and compiling it that's like, oh, goodness, I never knew this? I think um, a lot of it wasn't so much surprising. It was just when you when you read it, when you see it, when you're in the archives and when you're talking to um, family members, what um, is the emotional toil. Like, I can't stress enough the um the the trauma and the intimidation that was the purpose of these lynchings and um one of the things that was just so well that was very moving were the people who um the impact of lynching so we have the people who were um killed in these horrible traumatic ways but you also have their families and we have people who were fleeing communities relatives 
um, friends, associates, anybody who had any type of connection with them who were forced to leave their homes out of fear of continued retaliation and violence. And so when we talk about the uh, Great Migration and the large number of populations of uh, African Americans in cities like Detroit and Chicago, we think of them leaving for economic um, reasons. And a lot of that can actually be um, analyzed through the lens of them fleeing from racial terror in the South. And I think um, that was what was really a critical thing, because I have a lot of relatives in, in the North um, and out West, and when you think about like how our families were spread out that way, it becomes very problem. The other thing that um, was particularly startling when we would go into these communities um, to gather more research was the way that the community narrative was presented. Um, even in particularly African-American communities, there was like there are, there's a prevalence across the south of these monuments and memorials that celebrate the Confederacy that very much tell one side of the story and just sort of completely um, ignore the African-American community in that part of the history. We have a lot of communities that focus on civil rights and talking about that, but not a lot of communities that were, were telling this story about the trauma um, that right. that was imposed on them, and I think that was most silent. Cause when you look at that narrative, when you look at how a community presents its history and how it tells its story, that becomes very telling of the dynamics of that community. You're certainly right about that, and it's the funny thing when I have gone in the deep south, and you're just, you just—it's know, like you said, Kara. You, you, you can be just walking, and you'll see these monuments or these little markers on the sidewalk. Dedicated to the Confederacy, mm-hmm. and it's incredible. In the 21st century, they're still there. You know, saying Absolutely. this is where we fought this battle. Absolutely. And, um, in Montgomery, yeah, folks don't, we can, right. Go, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say, in no, Montgomery, there is an extreme that. prevalence. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Yes, indeed. Now, did you? Have, I want to. Well, I've done a couple of shows on lynching on this program before. Mm-hmm. You know. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with a book by a doctor, Carintha uh, Mitchell, called Living with Lynching. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar with it? Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, because that, yeah, I'm glad you are, because she says something. I wonder if you ran against this, too, because she's talking about lynchings in particular in the early 20s and the plays based on it. But right. she mentions at one point, that there were some folks in the African-American community that had this belief that, you know, well, there's some some of our folks that needed to be lynched. And did you run across any of that based on the fact that they were, you know, what they perceived as criminals or something like that? A lot of what we saw were um, what we would classify as survival Um so in order to prevent additional backlash from the white community um, who had designated someone a criminal by the mere accusation without having a fair trial, um, right. they would be lynched in these very horrible ways. And so in order to distance themselves and to try to save additional lives, what we would see would be would be um, some members from the black community coming forward and offering some of that sentiment. But we didn't find anything in our additional research to prove to say that that's what really happened. Um, I think that, right. you know, we have to think, if I were in their shoes, what would I have done? Right. You have to look at it that way. Now, did you get the opportunity to also talk to um, 
the descendants of the white folks who perpetrated some of these lynchings, were you able to do that? And that's a part of the project that we're hoping to um, to, to delve into more and to explore it in further detail. Uh, and as I I can't explain how much um, the reception for the lynching report and the information that we've been able to collect has been well received in the community. And what we're finding that there are a lot of people who we didn't initially contact who have um, information and who want to tell their stories and who want to talk about what happened in their communities. We're definitely actively trying to follow up with a lot of those people right now. Well, that'll be good because yeah, this has to it has to continue. This it's a topic that you know people do not want to deal with, but it's there. And lynchings continue in a different form now, and we've talked about this on this show before. And you know, I want you you know, cause, you know, I want you to uh, tell my listeners the you know what do you hope to accomplish for younger folks out there with this report. Folks who, you know, were born, like, say, in the in the late 80s, 90s, you know, who may be listening to the program, what do you hope will accomplish for them with this report? Absolutely. And um, I should say that that's my, my generation. These are my peers that you, you ask for this. Um, so I feel fairly comfortable talking about the goals there. Um, right. For us, again, going back to the initial goal, the overarching goal of the project in general is to just, again, offer this contextualization. Um, there's so much uh, lacking from the type of education about this history that we get in our schools too often. Um, so we want to make sure that this information is available definitely to include in curriculum and to begin having these conversations in our classrooms um, where we can really begin to critically analyze this work and to push our students to think further. But for this younger generation, it isn't, um, it is our goal that we can be able to give them this context, give them this history, and give them the, the knowledge that they need to be able to process what um, they see today. A lot of times we think about a lot of the injustices that have, that we see playing out in our communities across the country as things as one-off things, the things that are happening in a vacuum. And I think we can understand the systemic challenges and the way that our country has had this long, detailed, and very dark history of oppression of a group of people. Then we can better understand how the way that the system has evolved and the challenges that we face today. So what we hope is to do is equip people with the knowledge that they need to begin to understand better and to reflect on what um, this the practical implications for us are now. Well, the, you know, the report has done a great job on that. And, Kiara, if people want to get the report, um, where can what website can they go to? They can go to our website, which is www.eji.org. You can call our office at area code 334-269-1803, and you can email us at contact underscore us at eji.org. And give them that one more time because I got some slow folks out there. <laughs> it's like, you know, <laughs> Not a problem. Okay. So the web the website is www.eji.org. Our office number where you can just call and request a copy, area code 334-269-1803. And you can email us at contact underscore us at eji.org, and we'd be happy to provide a full report to everyone. Yeah, because it's really a great report. I, Thank you, know, you so I, much. You know, I already have it. And we really did a great job. And, it's, you know, it's something, you know, I'm glad you're keeping 
just the history alive and finding out more information because folks needed it. As you said, Kiara, earlier, like, some folks want to brush our history under the rug. And it's great when I hear someone, you know, young like you, who really are working on you know, keeping the history alive. And so I'm just happy to have you on here. On short notice, dude, happy to have you on here today. And if anyone wants to contact you, should they go to the same website or what should they do? Absolutely. And my email address is K B as in boy O O N E at E J I dot O R G. You can reach me at that same number. All right. Well, Kara, I just want to thank you for stopping by here today and we'll have you back on again at some point in the future when the the second report will be coming out. Well, actually, this will be the third one because you did slavery. So when will the next report be out? We hope uh, by uh, in just a few months. And we are also releasing, um, so I told you about the 12 states, we're releasing state-specific reports over the next couple of months as well. So those will come out before the third report. But each state will get a report about lynching in its state, talked about more broadly. Well, Kiera, I'd like to invite you back on in the spring talk about those reports, too. Absolutely. We'd, we'd love to join you. All right. Well, thank you so much, Kiara. You take care and look forward to talking to you later on. Take care, Kiara. Great. Bye-bye. Thank you. And, again, that was Kiara Boone. On oh, short notice, short notice, uh, Kiara Boone with the Equal Justice Initiative, and they have a report on lynching in America. She gave you the site and where you can download it. It's a it's a great report, a sad report when you read it, but it's really great as far as the information and all. And hope you get out there and you read it, you know, read your history, you know, read about your history. But I'm going to play again, KRS-1, The Sound of the Police, because the Equal, the Equal Justice Institute does a, initiative does a lot also with police as far as the whole issue of what's going with the police and folks of color and the release of many prisoners who have been incarcerated wrongly. So I'm going to play right now. We're going to do KRS-1, Sound of the Police. So let's hear that on the Root and Root Show. That's the sound of the police. That's the sound of the beast. That's the sound of the police. That's the sound of the beast. That's the sound of the police. That's the sound of the police. That's the sound of the police. Fuck! 
And that was KRS-One, Sound of the Police. Hope you enjoyed that. Before that, we had uh, Kara, uh, Kara Boone from the Equal, Equal Justice Institute talking about the initiative. I'm sorry, Equal Justice Initiative talking about the uh, Lynching in America report they just put out. And I, I had to say something here before I get to more music here because this has been on my crawl. I've just been a little upset about this. Is um, Some of you may know about the Jackie Robinson West Little League baseball team out of Chicago who got their title stripped because they said um, that some of the players did not live in the areas that they said, you know, that they supposedly lived in. And my thing is that, to me, they're still champions, first of all, one. And you know what this means as far as, you know, we've been trying so hard to get more African-American youth to play baseball. And to have something like this, this is going to be devastating for a lot of folks. But, you know, I can see actually getting folks from, if you've ever been to Chicago, the inner city, or any inner city city, one thing you notice, you don't see too many diamonds, baseball fields. You see folks, uh, if it's not an empty field that's been not fixed up or anything, you'll see a condo being built there, concrete. In other words, you don't have much room four fields anymore because the developers are just taking all the land. And so you will have a lot of African-American kids who are from outside of the area, be it Chicago, be it D.C., be it L.A., be it um, Denver, wherever, who, you know, that's where that's where the fields are. That's where the immaculate baseball fields are. That's where there's still some land to play baseball. So this is just a devastating thing. And I know other teams do the same thing, but it's just it's just a shame. And you know, Las Vegas, you know, they were you know they that's the team that reported them. Now they're the champions because Jackie Robinson West beat them, and now they're considered the champions. You know, but in actuality, the kids from the Jackie Robinson West team should hold their heads up. They are still champions to many folks. The adults involved in some of this, they. They have, you know, they're the ones that should be punished on one hand. But on the other hand, I can understand, like I said, you know, them getting kids from wherever they can near the Chicago area because there's nothing, there's nothing around. The ball fields are going. You know, there's condos. You just name it, being put in those spaces where there would be a ball field, where there is one. It's just underdeveloped. It's just not immaculate at all. So I can understand that. But it's just, you know... But don't 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 blame the youth for that. Don't blame the kids. They did the best they could, and I hope that does not discourage other African American youth as far as playing baseball and saying, "Oh, well, you know, they're gonna strip their titles. We might as well go to football, basketball, you know, soccer, whatever." Which is is fine, but we're trying to get more African Americans used to play baseball, you know, because it's a great sport. But anyway, that's my little commentary here about Jackie Robinson West, and we're going to get to more music here on the Root and Root Show. And I think right now, I think we'll do right now, Lil Johnson. We're going to play Lil Johnson here, and we're going to play Sam the Hot Dog Man. So let's hear that on the Root and Root Show.
Lady Boom. Run, 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 run,
I've got a gal in Cleveland, and that's where I want to be. Got a gal in Cleveland, she's who I want to see. That's why I'm gonna go back to Cleveland, Ohio, Ohio. I got a gal in that town. And she's all right with me. I got a gal in Cleveland. She's all right with me. So you know I gotta go back to Cleveland, Ohio, Ohio. a gal in Cleveland, I want to be beside her, got a gal in Cleveland, she's my easy rider, that's why I want to go back to Cleveland, Ohio, she got the big blue eyes, white bottom feet, She's way oversized, but I'm just crazy about her me. She looks like a bear, got hair everywhere. Her name is Trudy, and she's got loads of booty. That's why I gotta go back to Cleveland, Ohio.